Hello, uh, good afternoon or good morning or good evening where you are. Uh, we're waiting for one more speaker, but he'll just be joining in the next uh, two to three minutes. So I want to welcome everyone to our FOMC space or FOMX space. We do these monthly with great speakers and we're really excited for today's. This is our first, I guess, uh, X space. Um, so thanks for tuning in. Uh, with that, I want to welcome everyone for starting their afternoon with us. Grab a tea or a coffee. I'm Unusual Wales, and I'm happy to have Nicholas help lead the conversation. Nicholas, if you can. How's it going, everybody? As always, I'm excited to have all of these great macro speakers here with us. Like Wales said, we do these every month, and every single time we do this, I learn a ton. So if you're not following these folks up here, kind of as I go through the intros before we get started, go give them a follow. You're going to learn a lot from every single person we have on the panel today. So to our panelists, I like to keep these panels very open for discussion. So as we kind of go along, if you have, you know, any opinions, any responses, any two cents to add to any given topic, please feel free to raise your hand. The only request I have is that you stay muted while other speakers are talking so we can avoid any overlap or background echo. And again, as always, feel free to plug anything you want. We're happy to pin it to the top of the space here for people to check out as well. So without further ado, let's get started with our intros. As always, we've got Joseph Wang, our incumbent Fed guy. He headed the trading at the Fed's open desk, a great introductory book on how the Fed operates and central banking called Central Banking 101. And he's the CIO at Monetary Macro, which launched a bunch of macro courses. You can actually go to unusualwhales.com slash courses and get 30% off of that. So there's no shame in doing so there. You're going to learn a lot. Welcome, Joseph. Hey, so thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I love these spaces. And we always love having you here, Joseph. Thank you. Next, we've got another long-running friend of the spaces, Last Bear Standing. Last Bear is an expert on markets where he writes about monetary policy in his weekly Substack. which if you're not already subscribed to that Last Bear Standing Substack, go do that now. He launched a new season, and so far it's great. Welcome back, Last Bear. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the discussion today. As am I. Thank you, Last Bear. Next, we've got Randy Woodward, a bond investor for 30-plus years. He was working at Bloomberg from 1988 to 95, and now he's an almost regular on these Unusual Whale spaces as well and a great follower for all things macro. Welcome back, Randy. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me again. I look forward to this. Yeah, I look forward to your feedback. I've got a couple of good questions that I think you'll be able to shed some light on. Next, we've got Michael Cow, the urban cowboy himself. He's the CIO and portfolio manager of Cow Family Office, having worked previously at Acanthos Capital Management. He's an expert in commodities, index arbitrage, and dynamic hedging. He also has the coolest glasses on FinTwit. Welcome, Michael. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks always for having me. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you as always, Michael. We'll also have... The Jam Croissant himself joining in later. As Whale said, he will be running a little late today, but he'll be here giving us some good volatility feedback. So let's jump right into our intro here before, before I get a little out of hand trying to go ad lib over here. So as always, let's take a moment here to go over some things that have happened since our last panel in June. 
Home prices still remain high, up roughly 42% since March 2020 per the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index, with business insiders saying housing is so unaffordable that over 75% of marketed homes are too expensive for middle-income buyers. The jobs market remains sticky, with non-farm payroll employment for June 23 increasing by 209,000, and unemployment rate itself remaining relatively unchanged at 3.6%. As of June this year, the annual inflation rate was 3%, with the cost of some things such as groceries rising 4.7% on the year. Updated Fed projections suggest rate hikes aren't over as well, with an additional 50 bips in rate hikes total projected throughout the rest of the year 2023. Meanwhile, the market itself maintains a general perception of a new bull market and indices nearing all-time highs. And of course, since we last spoke, Twitter has officially rebranded to X, causing everybody to think that I have certain other websites beginning with X open whenever they see my browser tabs. So with all of that said, let's start off. What am I missing kind of in the synopsis here in the macro world? So just to get some general ideas here, Joseph, maybe you can start us off here with a little of what we're missing in your current outlook. I think that was a great overview of what's been happening. I guess from the Fed's perspective, I'll just level set uh, as to where we are. So over the past year, we've had steady Fed hikes. So Fed started with 75 basis points, then went to 50, 25. And finally, in its last meeting, it paused. But of course, it wasn't just a normal pause. It was what we think of as a hawkish pause, because at that time, the Fed was also able to give guidance as to what it wanted to do for the rest of the year. And at that time, the Fed penciled in two more rate hikes. And that seems to be pretty much the consensus. Now, in between then and now, though, uh, one interesting that happened is that we had a CPI, a CPI reading that was, I think, surprisingly low and that seems to have changed the market's expectations a bit whereas the market widely and has been strongly signaled by the fed that the fed will hike today the market is a lot less confident that there will be another hike later on and i think whether or not we'll have more hikes later on really depends on how a debate uh, is going to unroll in the fed and, and that debate is whether or not monetary policy really does act with long and variable lags so uh, this matters right now uh, because if you look at the economy, you'll notice that inflation continues to be far above the Fed's uh, target. The Fed wants inflation to be 2%, but the Fed's favorite measure, core PC, remains about, let's say, between 4 or 5%. At the same time, the labor market remains strong, and economic growth also remains above trend. Now, if you are a member on the FOMC, what you're thinking is, well, if you're thinking that, infl if you're thinking that monetary policy acts with a lag, you're thinking that, well, although the economy is strong, I hiked a whole bunch over the past few months, and eventually that's going to feed through the economy, and so that's going to slow the economy down and get inflation to my target. But if you are a hawk, what you're thinking at right now is, I hiked rates a bunch already, and I think that impact is already being felt in the economy. There aren't very long lags because of the way we conduct monetary policy today. It's very different from how we did in the past. In the past, say, Alan Chairman Greenspan, would basically hike rates and not tell anyone about it. So uh, they would have a Fed meeting and people would have to look closely into the market to see if they actually did anything. Uh, but today, the Fed is very transparent. You have a whole bunch of Fed speakers. You have the Fed chairman giving press conferences as, as he is today. So the market basically prices in the Fed's moves 
months in advance. And because of that, there's a really good argument that monetary policy does not act with big lags. And so all the hiking that we've did in the past has already fed through this to the system. It's not working as much as the Fed would like it to be. So we got to continue to hike. So that's the big debate that I'm focusing on today to see um, how it's being resolved. My sense going in is that Chair Powell is on the side of the hawks where he thinks that we're going to need additional hikes simply because monetary policy works much faster now and it's and the job is not yet done, as he would say. So that's what I would focus on. Thank you, Joseph. And there's actually a lot to dissect in your response there. Uh, and we're definitely going to come back to a lot of that. But first, let's kick over to Last Bear here. You wrote well in your five themes of 2023 Substack post. I recommend everybody here read that. In the meantime, Last Bear, can you explain and summarize what you saw in the first half of the year and where things will go from here? Kind of expanding on what Joseph said in regard to the Fed pause and long variable lags. Yeah, thanks for the, the plug on the Substack. Um, I think that really going back to January is when we started to see economic data surprise to the upside in, in a lot of key categories, including income, uh, disposable income, and housing upstarts after sort of a period of declines through the second half of last year. Um, and I think that we've seen that economic momentum in the real economy sort of continue above where a lot of people expected it to go and generally um, not seeing signs, uh, at least in the current data of a recession that many people expected to happen this year. And so with the exception maybe of the financial stability concerns that happened back in March and April, um, which sort of repriced the market a little bit for what the Fed was going to do, um, I think that the general trajectory of the economy has remained much more robust and still is at this point more robust than most people thought um, last year as the economy started to slow down um, with sort of the jumbo rate hikes going into in the second half of the year last year. Um, and so I think that that has, uh, it, on the, from a market perspective, on the one hand, a uh, strong economy is good. That means positive earnings, growth, um, you know, good results from companies, investment from companies, um, all that sort of thing. And so I think that we've seen a lot of that, especially with companies that, let's say, had a bit of an earnings trough um, sort of in the back half of last year. Um, we've seen the tech, obviously tech has rebounded substantially this year. Um, and you start to see them coming out of that dip in earnings. Um, and so that's a positive at the same time. Uh, it also means that the Fed has less room to be able to cut um, or pause even. And so we're at the point now where I think the, the market sort of expects maybe one and a quarter more hikes. Um, the Fed sort of has said two in their most recent dot plots, which isn't totally being bought by the market. Um, but I think that the we will see in the coming months whether this this trajectory of economic growth is, is continues to sustain in the way that it has, in which case, um, you know, that, that makes the case for sort of higher for longer um, or whether there's going to be a reversion, sort of the, the long and variable lags, which I, I actually agree a lot with what Joseph said. Um, I think that the, the most tightening really happened actually sort of in the first half of 2022, um, which was an expectation of the future hikes. Um, you saw that in liquidity dynamics and you also saw that in terms of where rates traded. Um, and now long-term rates have really not, gotten past the point that they were at sort of their peaks back in 2022. So um, there's definitely an argument that the tightening 
sort of is actually in, in the rear view and, and some of the rebound in economic growth has been a result of um, sort of a stabilization in financial conditions over the past year. Um, so that was maybe a little bit long-winded, but I think that's kind of where I see monetary policy today. Hey, blow as much wind as you want to any time last bear. I think pretty much every word you had to say was very useful. So before I move on to the next question, does anybody on the panel have anything to add to what Joseph and Last Bear have said so far? I'll jump in real quick, just with a couple, a couple of thoughts. Uh, one kind of in the same vein uh, that the, the two of the guys just mentioned. Uh, but, you know, I think it's important to note that if you remove the, uh, the, the bank run and the debt ceiling issue, um, a pause never would have happened, in my opinion. The, the trajectory has been clear for years now, we're going on years of uh, the the ongoing call for transitory inflation, right? But it keeps being sticky, right? That unemployment, that the oncoming recession has been talked about now for years, uh, the slowdown, but we keep having the Fed come back into the fray, being forced back into the fray. Um, yes, we got uh, one number that was slightly less hot, but all uh, in, in the last CPI, but other than that, every single other number has been hot, not just from uh, a CPI perspective, uh, you know, the, the core specifically, but also unemployment. Uh, the, the employment market is in incredibly tight. The market is up 20% for the year. Um, you know, real, uh, real GDP growth got upgraded, uh, you know, significantly in, in, in nominal terms, GDP growth, nobody's talking about this, is over 6% uh, in the first quarter, right? Uh, what recession? What, what slowdown, right? Um, and so I think everybody, the markets have been ignoring the Fed for some time. The Fed continues to push back. I don't think that will change at some point. Markets will listen and catch up. Uh, the question is, what happens now if we break out above these kind of most recent highs in longer dated vol when people start to think inflation itself is structurally more sticky um you know that that is the big question and again everybody got caught in kind of the the uh you know the the debt ceiling and bank run kind of the pause the you know the pivot um that was never really part of the bigger core picture of what, what's happening here under the hood and i think the more the market rallies uh, i think the more we'll continue to see um, the, the longer term realities there. That's one. Separately, my second point, completely out of line with everything else, is is an important point. I think we'll get to later on uh, here. But but the important role that we're seeing play of, of volatility markets and the compression that's happening at the index level that's perpetuating a longer uh, cycle and, and and importantly a massive rotation, uh, massive rotational effects that we that we've now seen for two years. I think it's important to understand that and see what's happening there. And it's ironically tied to interest rates. Not many people are talking about this, if anybody. But the reality is that structured product issuance is through the roof, uh, particularly tied to the S&P 500. And that is a function of higher interest rates. All of these structured products benefit from higher interest rates. It's something that didn't exist in the 1970s that now is a critically, critically important uh, you know, structural element. Uh, S&P vol is very well supplied and it's driving massive dispersion and rotation throughout the market. And there's a ton of short vol in the AI names and the tech names, and the speculative names. 
uh, that really developed um, in the last year. That itself is part of what's driving uh, these massive breath breakdowns and, and really uh, odd things of the hood. But we'll get to that more, I think, as, as we go forward. But I think an important dynamic to, to put front and center. Yeah, we'll absolutely touch on some of that, especially um, something that you had said on a previous podcast earlier this month about how the VIX spot price can be a little misleading. But we'll definitely get to that a little later, Jim. Thank you. Michael, see your hand there. Yeah, um, thanks. I wanted to say that uh, I wanted to echo a couple of Jim's points on how the market has uh, gotten this uh, H4L higher for longer uh, wrong pretty consistently uh, throughout the year. Um, the, so if you look at the yield curve, which I call the linchpin of all things financial, um, and many regard that as the most omniscient uh, uh, economic indicator relative to many asset classes, I'll note that the yield curve has been completely wrong on H4L all year. Um, and if you think about how that's driving fund, how that's then driving uh, relative performance across asset classes, um, it makes for a very confusing macro picture. Um, I think monetary policy is definitely, definitely has varying transmission mechanisms across geographies. And that's one of the things that's been confusing about uh, uh, the push-pull on the U.S. dollar. Um, I think that, you know, the U.S. consumer is definitely the strongest consumer in the world. Um, there are a number of uh, factors, I think, that are demographic and structural. You're seeing, you know, Jem alluded to the unemployment numbers that are still way too hot at this point in the cycle. I'll also point out that you're seeing uh, shelter home prices actually start turning up in some uh, parts of uh, the country. And I think this, this labor shortage that we have is uh, demographically driven. Uh, by this shortage of uh, the cohort between the ages of, call it, 40 and 55. But at the same time, interestingly, we have a very big bulge in the cohort of 30 to 39 right now, which are in primary home buying age that are supporting the shelter component. So we have some very interesting uh, structural tailwinds that are making the life very difficult for the Fed uh, relative to other geographies. And when it comes down to the dollar, getting the dollar uh, right is also very important and very difficult right now because I think there's a tug of war between um, this whole notion that just because the Fed might be near the end uh, or near the peak, uh, you know, the terminal Fed funds rate, there's an automatic assumption that the Fed's next step, very next step is is going to be a full-on easing cycle, when I would argue that, you know, the, the both shelter and unemployment components just have not given the Fed the, put the Fed in, in the same sort of dilemma that's facing a lot of other central banks like the ECB or the, uh, the PBOC, right? In both of those cases, you're basically seeing extremely strong disinflationary data coming out of those zones. And uh, so, you know, one of the things that I've been saying is that I think at the, at the end of the day, um, no one is going to outhawk the Fed, and the narrative will soon shift to who will be the first to wind up outdoving the Fed, which I think is almost every other geographic zone. 
So I think I think these are just some some things to think about. And one last point is that um, the so with commodity prices, that's the other thing. Commodity prices have ripped recently, but um, I've been having this little debate on my Twitter feed saying that don't conflate the strong apparent demand numbers coming out of China, for instance, as strong consumption numbers, because the, to me, the tell is that when you see a broad-based rally in commodities right now, at this point in the credit cycle where the rest of the macroeconomic data coming in is very, very negative, it should suggest to me that right now everything is dollar-driven. There's a re Whereas in 2021, you had a, um, a positive correlation between dollar strength and commodity prices because, because commodity prices kicked off this inflation cycle and therefore kicked off a Fed that was – uh, kicked off Fed hawkishness before everybody else. Now you've got a you've got the uh, negative correlation kicking in the short term, Be and and the downside tails, fundamental tails are actually increasing. So that's that's my word of caution there. Thank you, Michael. And we'll definitely touch a little bit more on that last point you made later on in the panel as well. For now, Randy, I need to get your opinion on the current outlook in the bond market and the recession flags we saw over the last six months. So Randy, were they false positives and was the yield curve wrong? And to kind of piggy off of that, I'd love to get your opinion on what happened with PacW and Bank of California yesterday, um, along with the bank earnings of JPM, Wells Fargo, Schwab, posting great earnings generally. Sure. Um, <laughs> well, first off, I'm going to be the, I guess the sole fly in the punch bowl here because everybody's like super duper positive um and i'm i'm certainly not and i guess you know as a bond guy you know we usually aren't we're usually pretty pessimistic so you know that's my bias um i guess what let me tell everybody first what i do because i i don't I'm not sure many people know because there's only a few thousand of us who do what we do in this country and that is i sell bonds to primarily banks and credit unions coast to coast. So I'm intimately uh, involved with helping banks manage their, now mostly community banks. I would say strictly community banks. So banks, you know, 500 million to say 10, 15 billion. Um, and by the way, these are the banks that actually really do run the economy in this country. It's not JP Morgan. It's not Bank of America. You know, those are giant conglomerates. And quite honestly, I have no idea what they're doing to get their positive earnings. But, um, but so that's my background, but I also help banks move loans. So a bank can buy and sell securities, but they can also buy and sell loans if they are producing too many loans or they're not producing enough. So basically I'm, I think I'm sitting on ground zero watching what banks are having to deal with right now. And I will tell you, banking has changed probably forever. And we're not going to know all the different ways it's going to change, but I'm just telling you, it's already changed dramatically. It's going to continue to change as regulators look into what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and uh, all the other ones. And, and make no mistake, PacWest was a fail. Okay, that's nothing great happened there. They're taking a massive loss on their stock. They had to sell, you know, let me give you an example. So as far as I could tell, what really got Silicon, uh, 
silicone going the wrong way was Goldman uh, communicated the fact that they were selling the AFS portfolio available for sale and they were on 20 billion and they were taking a $2 billion uh, loss on that and significant loss. And all of a sudden everybody's realizes, wait a minute, you mean there's unrealized losses in banking and you know, and a lot of reasons why there was a run on silicone, but that's a run. End of story. Matter of fact, take the run out, give them BTFP, and I don't think we'd ever hear of anything about Silicon Valley Bank having a problem because they would have been able to be funded through the BTFP program that the Fed's now offering. But now we've scared the living hell out of everybody. And by the way, the AFS portfolio they sold, this whole idea of, oh, they bought bad bonds, it, it, it drives me nuts seeing that by – people are supposed to be smart in financial media, that's an incredibly ignorant statement because that AFS portfolio, actually including their HTM portfolio held to maturity, were very modest duration portfolios. They were not long and they were not full of bad bonds. That's ridiculous. They were just trying to take the loss. They're trying to change the balance sheet. They were doing a prudent thing. Unfortunately, everybody panicked. But what I'm telling you is now all my banks are – they're going to be forced to shorten duration, which is going to affect lending and profitability. Uh, they're tightening credit. They're not growing right now, and most of them are shrinking their balance sheets. This is going to take time to affect the economy, but it's sure as hell not going to be a positive. And I think there is a lag to what the Fed's done. I think the Fed's gone way too far. I think they're doing this because they're trying to control the yield curve the best they can before they're put in a position to pause and before they're probably forced to cut, in my opinion. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get this kicked around the panel a little bit. I'm going to go Joseph next, then Michael. I'd love your two cents on everything Randy just mentioned. I think Randy makes some great points. I've been looking at a lot of the big earnings for some of the, well, for the mega banks and also the smaller banks. And you definitely hear that loan growth is, isn't happening. You can, I think, if you look at the aggregate data, you'll see that loans and leases by banks, so that's banks making loans to, to real people and businesses, has basically been pretty static, very, very slow growth since, since uh, the fourth quarter of last year. And that ha that's happening in the Eurozone as well. We, we recently got uh, more Eurozone banking data. And that's, I think, how monetary policy is supposed to act. So one of the things that the Fed wants to do is that it wants to slow the economy down. One channel for this is to slow intentionally bank credit creation. Because when you raise interest rates, on the one hand, from the bank's perspective, they see higher interest rates, slower economy, there's more credit risk. Now, a bank doesn't want to make a loan to someone who won't repay them, so there's less supply of loans. And from the borrower side, of course, you see something similar. So the borrower looks at higher interest rates, well, I don't want to, let's say, buy a house when mortgage rates are 7%, right? So there's less demand for loans as well. And so you see uh, you see the balance sheets, the credit creation of, of these banks slow down, and, and that's to be expected. I think it's noteworthy that you have you know, a lot of people in the Fed pouring over this, and they have the absolute best data on these. Uh, for many of the larger banks, they actually have Fed staff sitting inside a bank, uh, making sure that they are they are uh, I know, getting the best information. And as we all know, that doesn't always work well. <laughs> but um, uh, but they're, they're saying that, you know, I, I don't see credit creation slowing 
uh, any more than I would expect outside of a normal tightening cycle. So it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of a negative shock from, from the, the panic in March, uh, which I tend to think of as basically um, you have higher interest rates doing significant damage to areas of speculative tech and, and crypto and basically all the banks who built their business model around that narrow niche of industry went under and everyone else is basically fine. Um, as to whether or not there are lags to the economy, I, I totally agree with Randy that definitely um, over time, you'll see that say corporations who tend to take loans out for let's say five-year tenors who are still having interest rates that are very low because they took these loans down during COVID, eventually they're going to have to renew those loans and it'll be at higher interest rates. But I'm not actually that worried about that. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, first, of course, we are in an inflationary time. And so if you look at corporate profits, they are, they've basically gone up like a rocket ship, right? Revenues go up with inflation. Corporations are making a lot of money, so they can obviously afford a higher interest rates. In addition, I think there are a little, some structural changes in the economy such that the economy simply isn't as interest rate sensitive as it used to be. Uh, for example, if you look at uh, once upon a time, a lot of the economy was manufacturing big capital intensive industries, but today it's more service oriented. It's simply not that interest rate sensitive. And if you look at more interest rate sensitive industries, let's look at housing, for example, which we would commonly associate with slowing down with high interest rates. And it did slow down a bit last year. And then now it seems to be reaccelerating. You see housing starts jumping back up. You see a lot of home builders going to all time highs. What seems to be happening is that home builders are making so much money off of new home sales, their profit margins uh, from Pulte, for example, remain uh, comfortably above pre-2020. They're able to spend a little bit of money to buy down interest rates and get the deal done. And of course, you also have a whole bunch of wealthy boomers who don't even need to borrow money. They, they have all cash transactions and, and so forth. And because the structure of the economy has, has changed so much over the past few years, I don't think the Fed is redoing it. I actually think the Fed is maybe still a little bit behind. And perhaps we've, you know, we've already had the recession that everyone has anticipated. For example, last year we had two consecutive quarters of basically no or low growth or negative growth. And now we seem to be on a way to accelerating. If we look at the most recent Atlanta Fed now GDP data, it looks like the forecast is or comfortably above 2%, where the underlying potential growth of the economy is about 1.8%. So I see the Fed as, as still a bit behind because it's not uh, understanding that interest rates are not as effective in the economy as it used to be. And there are, you know, other than the structural things that I talked about, there are also things like fiscal spending who continue to, to support, of the, support the economy and demographic factors, which I really like that, that Michael mentioned, and I'm sure we're talking to later. It uh, looks like Mike has his hand up, so I'll, I'll give it to him. Thank you, Joseph. Michael, you had something to add as well? Yeah, I would suggest, though, uh, maybe that uh, per perhaps it's not that the it's not that the uh, economy is less interest rate sensitive, but perhaps that the interest rate sensitivity is being masked by what I call the large cap factor, because not just you don't you don't see this large cap, small cap divergence in performance in equities only. You're definitely also seeing it in in uh, in credit. Because even though uh, you know the you know broadcast high yield spreads are still very very well uh, behaved, I am invested in a opportunistic lending platform that does what I'll call structured equity and credit financing, uh, specifically to small and medium uh, enterprises. 
And they, I, they just put out their, uh, their quarterly letter, and they were basically saying that you know, small and the, the void in lending left, uh, especially in a post Silicon Valley bank world. Um, they said that banks. I, I thought this was very interesting. Banks are now not being incentivized to be lenders, but instead hoarders of capital, requiring more cash collateral to lend, which is pretty ironic. Why do you need to borrow when you have the cash, right? But access to liquidity for the small and medium uh, enterprises is very, very impacted. And so to me, the, the core is rotten here. The, the, and, and, you know, I'm definitely not sanguine, Randy. I think in the end, the Fed will win this battle. And um, that's why I've been cautioning people on, on the commodities rally as primarily be, not being fundamentally driven, but being driven by short-term dollar dynamics. Um, I'm not a believer of this immaculate uh, disinflation scenario and that the recession has happened. I think what we're seeing uh, in the public markets is an echo of what we saw in 2000 and 2007. I wrote a substack a couple weeks ago. I called it bottoms up macro to, as, a, as a play on the often uh, mis, misused uh, terminology. When people, when people say bottom up, they usually mean fundamentals, but a lot of people use bottoms up. And I think bottoms up actually characterizes this very late stage punch drunk FOMO driven grab for this hopium trade, this Fed uh, pivot hopium trade, which is a very, very late stage cycle phenomenon, in my opinion. Thank you, Michael. Does anyone else on the panel have anything to add or maybe Randy, anything to respond to uh, based on what Joseph and Michael responded with? You know, <clears throat> you know, whether the Fed's won or not, I think they have won. I just think it's going to take time to show. I think, in my opinion, they've won too much. And, you know, I look at things, you know, a big fan of Lacey Hunt and a lot of people are like 55th of the way they like him or not. But, you know, his whole ODL argument, other deposit liabilities have come down dramatically at these banks. M2 has come down dramatically. It got a little blip up on the last update, but it's come down dramatically. And I'm seeing all these signs, my opinion, of deflation to come, not disinflation. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people really understand that if you go back and look two or three times, Powell, and I think I mentioned this last time we talked, I found it really interesting. Two or three times in his pressers, he's been asked about his efforts to bring prices down. And he almost jumps off the podium when somebody says that. He says, absolutely not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to slow the pace of price increases, right? Bringing prices down is deflation. And Personally, and they, that's worse than inflation. They have less control over that than they do inflation. So I think that's what's coming. And, you know, you look at, like, all these metrics I just mentioned, you know, if you're a monetarist, you know, M2 comes down, that's deflation. That's going to eventually run in. That's, that's the core of monetarist economy. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example I thought was really interesting. Go back. Well, there's two here. So I would. I'd like to see what jo uh, Joseph has to say about this. If you, if you haven't read it, Joseph, please do. So on June 29th, there was a joint release from the FRB, the FDIC, NCUA, and the OCC. Uh, it was called Agency's Finalized Policy Statement on Commercial Real Estate Loan Accommodations and Workouts. Basically what this was, and you should read it in depth because it's really fascinating. Basically what they're doing is they're saying, we know 
there's a, a storm coming. We know it's it's happening in CRE right now. All forms of CRE too, not just office. Office is an absolute dumpster fire, and or at least someone's waiting to throw a match on it. So go read that. And what they're doing is they're saying delay. Here are some directives on how you can delay uh, the inevitable of a person, you know, a, a borrower having to refinance a loan that they cannot refinance. And so if they can continue to pay, extend the term, I think they suggest one year, extend the term one year, and we'll look at it a year from now. And, and here are all the different, they gave like five different versions of it. And they said, basically, we're going to turn, we're going to turn our head. As long as you do it this way, we're going to be cool with it. So we're going to delay an inevitable situation for a year. I have to think, my opinion is they know damn well in a year we're probably going to be cutting rates and some of this uh, interest rate, you know, uh, uh, stress is going to be alleviated. Um, I would love to see some people read that and let me know what they think. But to me, it's an extraordinary, especially because it's joint from all those different agencies. I, you know, I think they see what's coming. It's going to get ugly, man. It's really going to get ugly, and it just takes time. And it's about, you know, six to 12-month process before I think we really start to see the damage that they've done. That's it. Uh, so I, I have not read it, but that's definitely really interesting color. And with regard to, you know, bank lending to commercial real estate, I'm going to defer to Randy, who has much more expertise in that. Uh, one thing that I'll note, though, just Randy's perspective on, on the banking system slowing down because of rate hikes and so forth, that's definitely happening. But just to bring in Michael's view on the dollar, you know, in the U.S., we are not as bank dependent as many other regions in the world. In the Eurozone, for example, where we see notable slowing in the banking sector, um, that's gonna have a much stronger impact on, on their economy than it is in the US where, you know, if you're a big company, you can go to the capital markets, you have a whole bunch of private credit funds, you have a whole bunch of, uh, you know, BDCs that can make make loans to you. It's, it's a much more open space in, in the US than it is in the Eurozone. And so, you, one way that I like to think about it in currency terms is that if you are another country like the Eurozone, you don't have to hike rates a lot. You can get, get, get a big impact simply because of how your financial system is structured. And so uh, you are not going to be able to out hawk the Fed because you don't need to. And so I think that is implications for relative currency strength and not just for the Eurozone, but for countries like Canada, for example, Australia, the UK. Thank could, you, Randy just... and Joseph. Yeah, Michael, go ahead. And then I'm going to kick it over to Jim before we dive into some more banking questions. Just a quick comment on the uh, on the currency effects. So I, I over the weekend, I wrote a, a piece called the Donkey Kong dollar peg referring to the soft uh, peg of the Chinese yuan and the hard peg of the Hong Kong dollar saying that, you know, as as much as we think that the Fed is between a rock and a hard place, it's nothing compared to the, the, the policy dilemmas faced by the PBOC. The PBOC, you know, if you if you think about what China, which is the largest economy in the world, has done from its uh, from a COVID stimulus standpoint, it has done diametrically the opposite of what we've done here. So this whole Great China reopening trade, why a lot of people got it wrong, I think, was to view this revenge spending that that occurred here from a you know and extrapolated to china but they 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 actually uh their response to COVID was diametrically opposite to ours we flooded the market with monetary and fiscal bazookas to support the consumer 
they locked down for an additional 18 months and offered no such support in either case. If anything, uh, their three, line, three red lines policy to curb property speculation has worked a little bit too well. And now um, they, their policy responses have been very, very tepid. So it's uh, it's very interesting. I you know I, I think that it, there's going to be a very strong disinflationary pulse coming out of China, um, and it's coming at the same time that you're seeing the same thing happening in the eurozone as well. And you know J- Japan, well, Japan's been stuck in that rut for a long, long time. So so I definitely see, uh, I, Randy. I hear your points on the uh, on the uh, disinflationary, if not deflationary, um, headwinds coming down the pike. But I would also argue, though, that given how uh, high price levels have become, and I, I live in LA, and you know, when I when I see uh, my uh, recently graduated college kids having a hard, such a hard time affording rent in a, in a city like this, it suggests to me that we actually need some deflation. Uh, the, the second derivative turning down uh, isn't enough. It, you know, I, I, I think the first derivative needs to turn negative somewhat. Yeah, Mike, I, that's really well said. That's exactly right. Um, and, and to speak to what you, my son also, he lives in LA, and so I, I feel your pain. Well, he doesn't feel any pain I do right now, but that's another matter. Um, go look, this was fascinating to me, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to you guys. The Cleveland Fed it has this really neat metric. What they did for years, they were following um, the uh, owner's equivalent rent, and they had their metric on there, and it was uh, basically all rents. And it actually very correlated with owner's equivalent rent. And so owner equivalent rent right now is, is 7.8 and you know 7% basically. And Cleveland has their all rents at 7%, very correlated. What they have, though, they started, I think, in around 2005, yeah, is new rents. And the way they explain it, it's worth going to there and reading about this, too, is they they explain it that, you know, all rents are going to take time to adjust because people have leases that are locked in, and maybe they can take on, you know, a new rent increase. But at the point where they can't and they have to move, that takes time to ferret out, and, and, you know, we know that. What they did with new rents, though, is that's immediate. That's that happens right away, and they say that that they figure that leads owners equivalent rent by about twelve months. That metric just went negative for the first time since it was recovering in two thousand ten. Now, whenever I see any metric that is as low as it or high as it was, you know, in the great financial crisis, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to really be watching that sucker. Unfortunately, it's only an updated quarterly, I believe. But the fact that that went negative really tells me that here's another sign of, of, I believe, deflation coming. And, yeah, it'd be great for a lot of people, but it won't be great for the Fed. And the Fed will fight it with everything they got. If they're – even at CPI, it doesn't matter. I don't care what they prefer. Everybody looks at CPI. CPI goes negative, and you're going to – I think you're going to see a panicked Fed. Thank you all. Now, before we move on here, I do have some more questions about banking, 
the concept of higher for longer, as well as that topic of deflation versus disinflation. But Jim, is there anything you wanted to add to what speakers have said so far before I move on here? Uh, I'm going to step into my my usual role of hammering on you know structural versus you know uh, cyclical secular versus cyclical inflation. Um, I, I think you know the the point that Michael brought up about you know the, the China in particular being a much harder place than the Fed is is very appropriate. Why? Because because they don't have the benefit of a strong uh, economy, right? They, uh, they, you know, youth unemployment, uh, urban youth unemployment is 21.3%. Um, you know, you're looking at uh, major headwinds there, and they need to stimulate, but they can't because they're battling a lot of the same structural inflationary uh, pressures that we are. Not the cyclical, right? It's not a function of liquidity. They pull liquidity out. Why is there still you know, um, relatively strong inflation. They're the same reasons we are and the same reason that we're seeing in Europe. Uh, deglobalization, right? Less, uh, you know, in particular, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of, um, you know, problems with getting things from one side to the, to the other. These are not things that were just tied to the, to the pandemic. They're a function of a world that is much more in conflict. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot... Um, coming down the pipe uh, that, that are causing massive structural, um, you know, inflationary pressure. So I think that's important. We're seeing, uh, you know, pickup of uh, inflation in Europe, uh, globally, uh, you know, Australia, uh, et cetera, as well. So it's not just what's happening here. It's what's happening to liquidity globally. Uh, the Fed's not the only one that's, that's trying to, to talk it down and, and battling a, a broader inflationary picture. And that is not going to go away with just a cyclical uh, set of pressures, which is, you know, again, I've been talking about this for some time, but the only tool in the toolbox and, and, and the Fed is, uh, you know, we not not only not uh, getting their way cyclically, but much less, if anything, exacerbating the, the structural effects. Thank you, Jim. So I'm going to kind of pivot back here to the topic of banks again. And uh, last bear, I'm going to pick on you a bit here. Uh, you've been following a resurgence in the regional bank space lately, last bear. And earlier this month, uh, or was it late last month, you published an article titled Regional Bank Rebound. And since then, regional banks have indeed rebounded. So last bear, can you real quick here, give us a breakdown of what you see on the horizon for regional banks now, roughly a month after that article published. Will the rebound continue or have they now reached a point of stagnation in your eyes? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, sector because obviously the entire sector got got creamed after uh, First First Republic and um, you know Silicon Valley before that. Um, and every sort of midsize or small regional bank um, got crushed partially because people trade ETFs and trade sectors as a whole these days. Um, and I think that what we saw from real-time bank data over the second quarter was that pressures had subsided um, somewhat from where they were at the end of the first quarter. Um, and that if you look at which banks were actually you know, really in trouble um, or had really, really problematic balance sheets, um, two of them had already gone bust. Um, and that you know, a couple are on the edge, so, so let's say PacWest and Western Alliance, but um, clearly not as, as in, in a bad situation as First Republic was. Um, and so, and, and a lot of the other banks I thought actually were in pretty decent positions and their, um, you know, their stock price that had fallen by 30, 40% um, wasn't really indicative of anything that was 
too problematic at the bank itself. So I thought that it was a good um, sort of tactical opportunity to um, take a play on regional banks. That's worked out pretty well over the past um, couple of weeks, really leading into second quarter earnings. I expected there to be a message of stability from the banks, which I think we largely got. Um, and uh, regional banks have performed really well. Um, but I actually uh, sort of followed up to that this past week, um, sort of cautioning against maybe mistaking a, a rebound with a longer term rally, because I do think that there are um, some some serious headwinds, which everyone is aware of and was part of the reason why banks did trade off. Um, but those headwinds still exist. So like uh, net interest margins are compressing across most of, you know, most all of the regional banks. Um, at the same time, on the other side of the balance sheet, uh, credit losses are still relatively low, but have been ticking up um, consistently for about a year now. Um, and so you see pressure, I think, on earnings going forward. Um, which make me less excited about sort of owning the, the regional banking sector as a as a longer term or medium term play. Um, but I think that it was a, a wise tactical move um, to sort of get in based on sort of the discount that we saw um, coming out of the, the bank failures earlier this, this year. So um, I'm less convinced of a, a longer term rally, but obviously it's, it's been a good trade for the past couple of weeks. Thank you, Les Bear. Randy and Jim, I see your hands. Let's go Jim, then Randy here. Uh, an important thing to add there that, that might be helpful uh, as it relates to regional banks and, and the kind of the, the call it the revo reverse rotation we've seen uh, in the last several weeks out of tech relative to kind of Russell and, and uh, whatnot is, you know, the S&P 500, as I mentioned itself, is structurally incredibly pinned. Um, it is a function of structured product supply um, in particular. Uh, that to put that in context, uh, we had not seen these levels of dispersion, which is the index uh, vol relative to single names uh, since 2017. This is the highest levels of dispersion we've seen um, in, in that metric um, ever. Uh, and, and that in 2017 was historic relative to 125 years of history, uh, completely out of line until we've seen it again. It's happening for the same reasons. That vol supply on the S&P is pinning the S&P relative to what's happening around the center. So we're, you're seeing dramatic rotations and dramatic moves um, around the center, of, which is pin, which is the S&P. Uh, we originally saw it early last year uh, as, as tech itself, um, you know, really rolled over before the whole market rolled over. I guess that was uh, almost a year and a half ago now. Um, and then eventually the market rolled over, uh, but growth versus value, that rotation. Now, you know, until, until this last month, starting in February, really, we saw a massive tech AI boom. Everything else was incredibly weak. And the narrative that followed it was, was of course, this, uh, this bank run. Um, but the reality is, it, you know, the two things are intrinsically connected. Uh, if the S&P is pinned and one thing goes up, something else has to go down. And so the underperformance until very recently of tech, uh, of, of, of regional banks and uh, Russell broadly relative to tech has been a function of that structurally. And uh, now that tech has become so crowded, we started to call for this before this last expiration. Uh, and not surprisingly, the two weeks leading into expiration is when you started to see the acceleration of the counter trend move because all of the calls in AI and tech are decaying and dealers have to sell their futures against that. And that's what we've seen. It was the exact polar opposite of what we saw at March OPEX that we called for the two weeks leading into March OPEX. Once that turns, that usually tends to continue for a while. 
Um, we're likely to see a continuation of that. The tech call uh, piece has gotten very crowded, is now coming down, and, and again, will lead to continued selling in that area relative to regional banks. So I think regional banks have a tailwind in that regard relative to tech. Now, whether or not the whole market itself will continue to be buoyant um, is another story, but uh, something to, to, to keep in mind. Thank you, Jim. Randy? Um, we're only in the first inning of bank stress. This is sort of like, you know, the banks that failed are like the two Bear Stearns funds that failed. You know, it was a tip of the iceberg. Uh, everybody kind of thought it came and went, didn't pay much attention to it. And really what it did is it foretold much worse things to come. All banks are in survival mode right now. And when they're in survival, and it's going to get worse, net interest margins are going to continue to be compressed. That's going to be the least of their problems when they finally have to start realizing losses that inevitably have to come. I mean, if you really, if you understand what's going on in commercial real estate office space, that is just, it is so bad and it's going to be so bad. We don't know how bad it's going to be and we don't know what that's going to do to the underlying balance sheets. But, you know, the fact that you've got, you know, Yellen out there saying, well, I, I think we need more mergers. There aren't any mergers. These are failures. PacWest is a failure and there's more to come. And it, it and all I could say is, you know, I, I could just see all my clients are battening down the hatches and they're doing everything they can to prepare to just try to survive to 25. Thank you, Randy. Now, before I spin this into our next line of questions, we've got about 14 minutes until we get numbers, I believe. Joseph and Last Bear, do you have anything to comment on given what Jim and Randy just said? I guess I'd make a point that kind of ties um, into what some of the speakers were talking about earlier about sort of bank loan growth and how indicative that is of monetary conditions and the current sort of market structure. Um, and I think that uh, Joe me Joseph mentioned it, but um, in the U.S., uh, bank loans represent uh, less than half, significantly less than half of total sort of credit outstanding. And so bank loans have definitely plateaued um, over this past year. Uh, which is not necessarily a good sign for the economy going forward, but capital market activity has come back substantially this year um, and from sort of the low point in maybe fourth quarter of last year. And that represents a lot of how sort of new debt gets um, financed and funded, um, securitizations, uh, you know, bond spreads are at historically thin, um, you know, thin spreads relative to treasuries. Um, and so there are, the activity sort of in, in the capital market space, I think, sort of helps buffer against maybe a plateauing or, or slowing of, of credit growth on, on bank balance sheets. And I think given the direction of where regulations are going, um, continuing to become more, um, more you know, regulated on, on banks and increasing capital buffers and you know, increasing the risk weighting, that sort of thing, um, will just sort of continue to push more of that activity into capital markets and will uh, make it harder to sort of get a great view of sort of overall credit growth by just looking at sort of the bank sector balance sheet. So just wanted to add that point. Thank you, Les. Joseph, any comments? Uh, well, I'll make one note on the commercial real estate because as Randy noted, there's a lot of concern there and the, the, some of the properties will not do well. Well, so the Fed has actually been looking at this and they, they have an interesting 
finding from it? Well, first of all, commercial real estate, obviously it's a very broad category. You have things like hospitals, you have industrial space, you have multifamilies, and uh, you know you also have um, downtown offices. So across all these sectors, they're all very different. Um, but as we all know, because people are working from home, a lot of the downtown office space in big cities is not doing well. And adjacent to that, the retail space who also depends upon those office workers is not doing well. So the Fed has really good data on all, all the banks in the US and they, they went in to do a deep dive to try to figure out just how big of the exposure there is. Now for the GSIPs, so the big eight bank, the biggest eight banks in the US, that exposure, it's about a hundred billion exposure to downtown office and real, real downtown office and retail. So that's actually very small. Now, when you go next ring lower to the larger regionals, it's also about a hundred billion. So that's also actually quite small. But when you when you go a step lower to the thousands of banks that most people have never heard of, so in the U.S. we have over four thousand banks. That exposure on aggregate is about five hundred billion dollars, and so that's sizable. And it's the Fed seems to have hinted many times that that exposure is largely dispersed. So it's not like it's concentrated in all just one bank, usually speaking. So when we're cautioning about the impact on commercial real estate to the banking sector, uh, I think the, the, the finding suggests that it's not the big banks, it's not the regional banks, but it's all these small banks that, that, um, that, that are less visible where we would have to worry. Thank you, if Joseph. I, now, I, yeah, I go ahead. Wait? I, just, I have a little tidbit on the uh, on the office sector that I'd like to share. So I had a call this week um, with a very large uh, loan originator in that space. And they were pointing out just the the difference in the, the quality difference, right? Um, so when you have like the single A uh, office uh, properties that, that are still, I think he mentioned that they financed um, a building at the junior debt level. That's, uh, that's basically one of the, one of the best buildings in Boston uh, recently at a seven and a half percent fixed rate still. But he also commented that, you know, the disparity between that and say the class B and C's are just massive because what you've got when you think about cap rates, you're capitalizing future cash flows at a certain rate. And I, I think of I think of my own experience in uh, in corporate and capital structure arbitrage, where you know when you've got an investment grade bond that trades on a yield basis, uh, deteriorate in credit and get into the distress zone, all of a sudden, uh, it, you know it no longer trades on a yield basis and starts trading on recovery. So I think. That is what is scary to me about the office sector because the difference between the haves and the have-nots is huge, and there will come a there you know so for certain parts of that sector they're going to transition from a cap rate perspective to a sort of recovery repositioning type of perspective, and and you're going to have some serious casualties there. <clears throat> Thank you, Michael. Randy, comments? Yeah. So, Michael, we call that trophies and trash. And, and that's the only thing really trading right now. So, yeah, there are trophies all over the country that aren't going to show any signs of distress because they're the most coveted buildings, you know, that exist. And then there's some really, really stupid, terrible thing, you know, uh, uh, buildings that are trading because they're basically they're just they're absolute trash. 
The problem we have is we don't know what's going on in the middle because nothing's trading. You know, again, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, my firm trades, these loans. So they're seeing that the loans are stuck, the buildings are stuck, and we really don't know what the reality is in that in that sector yet. And again, I, I point to what, you know, that combined uh, d- uh, directive they put out about delaying the inevitability of discovery, uh, you know, that's what they're pushing is because they know what's sitting there. And the thing no one understands, and be honest with you, I didn't quite understand it until my guys really taught me, was that the rate is the least of their problem. Refinancing from four to seven, that's pretty ugly, and that's blowing some deals up. But that's not the problem. The problem is, if you understand, and I barely understand it, to be honest with you, but commercial real estate and cap rates is that when you apply these higher cap rates to a building with a certain cash flow, your building is now worth less than it was when you got the loan. Okay, So the real problem is here is that on an existing uh, asset, hey, you, you took a $1.4 million loan. I can only give you $700,000 now. So you got to show up with seven hundred grand to close the old loan to reignite the new loan. They don't have the money. And so that is not happening. That's why they're delaying this process because once they're forced to finally have to recognize this, it's, it, there's nothing these guys can do. They simply cannot get the money. The keys go back to whoever the lender is, and that's when you're really and, – and by the way, when keys go back to banks – the process really ignites because that's not their business. They're not real estate moguls. So they start to sell, and they sell fast. And that's when you're going to really see reality hit. When that is, I don't know yet, but it's probably sometime uh, early, mid-next year. Also, I'd quickly add that Randy recently did a really good podcast on this topic with an expert at his firm, his colleague, and Jack Farley on board guidance. I thought it was really useful in understanding the space. Yeah, thanks, Joseph. You guys should watch it. I'm not the expert on this. This my guy is. His name's John Tuig, T-O-O-H-I-G. Follow him on Twitter. And he, by the way, he's got nothing to sell just like me. We're just, we're in this because we like to educate. And by educating right or wrong, we learn ourselves, you know, by being corrected and learning things from you wonderful people. On Twitter, he's at, at sign R-J Whole Loans, W-H-O-L-E-L-O-A-N-S. He, he kind of he, he's work on it in his Twitter effort, but he'll post his LinkedIn stuff there. Read it, man. He, this is ground zero information about what's happening in, in bank lending, which is what's happening in uh, uh, communities all around the country. You need to read him every week. He will tell you what is going on and what he's seeing, and he'll tell you where the stresses are. Uh, awesome resource for everybody. I'll definitely be sure to check him out. Thanks for the suggestion, Randy. All right, so kind of moving on here, and we'll definitely pivot back more to banks, more to disinflation, more to deflation in a bit as well. We've got about four minutes before we get numbers, I believe, but I do want to come back to you, Jim, here, kind of get the chance to learn more on the world of equity volatility at the moment. As we discussed in our last panel, volatility in the equity markets has been trending lower and seems to be kind of ranging around pre-COVID lows. Now, what I'd like, Jem, is if you can walk us through what you're seeing in the vol space now. We saw that in this year, volatility is majorly down, like I said, the VIX way down, while equity prices are up. But I know, Jem, you mentioned on the Lycaon 
YouTube channel that the VIX spot price can be misleading and that volatility may actually be higher than people assume. Jim, can you walk us through that? And apologies if we interrupt very briefly just to pronounce the the numbers with the FOMC coming up here. Yeah, no, no problem whatsoever. So, uh, yeah, so the, the concept of fixed strike vol, which I've talked about for some time, is very important. Um, most everyone sees volatility through the lens of the VIX, which is a measure of what the at-the-money volatility, uh, you know, the implied volatility expectations are for the move, right? But, but the reality is uh, that's not how volatility trades. Options trade at different strikes with different implied volatilities. So, you know, naturally, if the market goes down, you slow it, slide to a higher, you know, the puts are on a higher implied volatility. So you slide to a higher implied volatility, painting the VIX, is that the money volatility, as some form of a fear index, which has been done for now uh, decades, is could not be more incorrect. Uh, the reality is that regardless of what demand for volatility there is, uh, the market as it goes down will show a higher VIX or a higher at-the-money volatility naturally. What matters is what's happening to supply and demand of implied volatility as the market moves. And that is not a measure of floating or uh, you know at-the-money volatility. It is a measure of where volatility is, is relative to the fixed strike that you are moving to. So that is what we call fixed strike volatility uh, or, or uh, you know, fixed volatility. That is much more a measure of uh, fear and of demand for volatility products um, or supply. And that is what is critical when you're, when you're thinking about signal, you're thinking about what's happening under the hood uh, and and what's happening to traders' actual profits on volatility. Um, uh, as you slide up, the implied volatility, again, the opposite, it slides down uh, naturally. Calls are on a lower implied volatility than the at the money. And so you may see the VIX come down into a, a sizable move up, when in reality, that vol may be actually going up relative to the implied vol and the demand might be going up. That is what we have been largely seeing in this rally. We're getting larger realized vol moves to the upside and sliding to lower implied vol, which is driving demand for vol into a rally. That historically is something that we tend to see at, you know, at, towards the end of rallies because entities want to do stock replacement. Vol is getting too low relative to realized. And broadly, there is demand for that volatility the higher you go. One of the best ways to, you know, to, to hedge a, a, a coming decline into what is often a blow off top, similar to what we saw in 99, 2000, uh, when I was new in the business, oh, you know, 07 even, uh, other rallies like we saw during the, the, the COVID, you know, before the COVID crash, those types of blow off tops tend to be structural and need to happen in order to squeeze the shorts, but they also only resolve themselves and eventually get a decline as a function of that, that vol going bid and vol supply becoming unpinned, which tends to happen to the upside as you naturally slide to lower vol. So I just unpacked a lot there, but that is, that is part of the structural dynamics of what drives blow off tops, why we likely get them, why we call for one here and why we're, we're actually seeing that. And we're starting to see the signs of market up vol up more and more. That generally takes a while, it can take months, but the more and more you see that, the less likely people are to sell vol, in the market and provide that supply and the more likely entities are to come in and, and profitably buy vol into the rallies 
while still benefiting with, uh, you know, into a potential decline. The risk reward of bowling ball is much better now than it has been in quite some time, given those dynamics. And that itself can underpin a ball unpinning, which can under, under uh, you know, ultimately drive an exacerbated decline if and when it comes. Thank you, Jim. And we'll definitely want to circle back and touch on a few things you said there as well. I've actually got a follow-up that you kind of tickled. But for now, as expected, the Fed hiked by 25 bips. So kind of as we're digesting here, does anybody on the panel have any preliminary thoughts on the dot plots and Fed report as we kind of read through? Um, the Fed also, I believe, added the banking system is sound and resilient to this report and i'm curious how you all feel about that statement well that's what hank paulson said in the big short movie so i guess it's true <laughs> well, to my to my original point I, you know the reason they paused they've been pretty clear at this point was not really as much to because they didn't think inflation was a problem is because they were concerned about the tail risks around the bank run they were concerned about the impending debt ceiling uh, negotiations and they thought it was best to sit and wait and see. Um, that has passed. And I think this is a punctuation to that. And they are back at, you know, I think that's a clue that they're back to the business of fighting inflation. Now, Randy, I'm sure you do have something to say about the, the banking system being sound and resilient comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what else are they going to say, right? I mean, they have to say that's kind of silly. It's 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 a headline to ignore. Um, you know, again, you know, they got to continue fighting inflation. I mean, shit, man, it, it's coming down. Why can't you just let you know? Wait. The reason they can't, my opinion, is is they're again they're trying. The second they do a permanent pause or whatever the hell they're going to call it, you know, bond market's going to take over, and those those long rates are going to come down dramatically. Because they know what's coming next. I mean, that's why the curve's inverted, and and the severity of the inversion is conviction, and and they've never been wrong. And it's not a timing mechanism, um, it, 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 but it's an inevitability. So, and right now, as far as banks, look, man, they're gonna they're they're in survival mode. That's all I keep saying. That, that's all they're in. All my guys are just, you know, I've had a bank that shrank the balance sheet for no other reason than they had to re, you know, get a certain capital level. And so they said, okay, we're going to, you know, sell some security, shrink the balance sheet and just continue to survive. And, you know, all that's going to have an impact on a while, you know, it, we just, we just, it's going to be so many ramifications from what they've done. I mean, the severity of what they've done going from zero for all those years to, you know, hundred miles an hour to five and a half. I mean, it's going to take a couple of years to figure out how, what kind of impact this is going to have on everything because we've never done it like this before. So I'll just take a quick note, looking at Nick Tamaros' red line for the FOMC segment. What stood out to me was the change of the economy expanding at a modest pace to moderate pace. So it's a slight upgrade, it seems, in economic outlook. Again, that, that's not what's supposed to happen, right? You're supposed to hike rates and slow things down. I think it's like an acknowledgement that the economy continues to be stronger than expected. And so that, in, in my view, argues for a uh, higher for longer rate path. I mean, is 2% that strong, Joseph? I mean, or 2.4, whatever it comes in, you know, tomorrow. It, it... From, from the Fed's perspective, if you think the underlying growth should be 1.8 as neutral, then yes, 2.4 is markedly above that. Okay. 
Michael, do you have any thoughts here to add? No, I'm digesting. I'm watching a lot of stuff. Right now. Yeah, fair enough. Of course, at any time, folks, feel free to give any two cents, anything you're seeing in the report. Um, maybe last, Bear, do you have any comments to that little tail end of banking discussion we just had? Yeah, I was, I was actually going to chime in a little bit about Vol, um, just picking up on, on what Sam was talking about. I think it really is notable yeah, please. how uh, far uh, volatility, both fixed futures and um, spot fix, have, have fallen over the past, particularly the past couple of months, um, but sort of you know, going back all the way to probably October. Um, and I think that the dynamics that, that Sam was talking about, where you have sort of a, a positive reinforcement mechanism, whereby when vol is uh, falling, you have uh, sort of a positive impact to stock prices, positive impact to people willing to supply vol. Um, and that is really beneficial to stock prices. And we've seen that play out over the, you know, uh, the past you know six months or so, particularly in the past month or two, um, but as as some sort of pointed to, that also leads to potentially um, you know part of the reason why I think we didn't have a massive vol blow up in the prior years because um, the uh, the implied vols were, were so wide that to be able to sort of really get somebody off sides on a short vol trade, you would have had to see you know five six seven percent type moves in the S and P, whereas now. Um, basically, that the cost of that insurance has gone down substantially, which means um, if you're selling ball, um, then you have a smaller margin of, of error. And um, once that flips and you have basically, um, you know, the selling ball has been incredibly profitable over the past six months, um, and there's more and more people doing that, but that creates a smaller margin for error. And once that, if that flips where you have an inverted uh, sort of vol curve and spot fix over VIX futures, that can create sort of the, the very fast reinforcing mechanism of uh, price down uh, vol up. So I think that those risks definitely are standing out there. And this does remind me of some periods like September, 2020, for example, or March, or sorry, November, 2021, where, um, you know, you had that positive vol cycle really benefit, but then sort of come back to bite you pretty quickly. So something to keep an eye on. Thank you, Les Bear. And Randy, I saw that YouTube video on, on bank lending that you tagged us, and I went ahead and put that to the next team for those of you listening to that comment. Say that again. You got somebody's got something going on in the background. Yeah, so I, I did see that video you oh, yeah. tagged us in. I went ahead and shared that to the nest for those oh, listening yeah, here to check out. All right, I Michael. Apologize to everybody now, by the way, because I had my I used a different headset, so my Bloomberg beeper was going off. So I had a bunch of people tell me I was a unprofessional for that, and I had no idea. So oh, I, I don't think anyone here be as unprofessional <laughs> as I am. I don't think you're. I don't think you got anything to worry about there, Randy. Thank you. All right, Michael, you hey, had hey, some hey, notes. Hey, well, what, let me yeah, say, go ahead. hey, Joseph, did you see on Tamaris's, or how, how you ever say his name, you mentioned moderate, modest, but they went from continued to expand to has been expanding. That seems like it's almost, I can't tell if that's like, they're very, by the way, if, if anybody thinks it's silly about parsing these little words out, trust me, they, and Joseph will confirm. They put a ton of effort into very precisely how they word things and the very specific words that they use. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering if that's like a, a past tense statement or something. I totally, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Randy. I was looking at that, but, uh, you know, continue to has been, I mean, has been 
kind of implies it, it's still like that, but it, it could be that it suggests that maybe past tense. I, I'm sure they changed it for a reason, but maybe someone here can uh, has another view. I, I don't know what to read into that. I was just going to point out that I think all things equal, I'm, I, this is a slightly hawkish surprise to me, just given that, you know, in recent weeks, you saw daily speak rather dovishly. And then with the, uh, with the kind of weirdly timed resignation of uh, Bullard, Uberhawk Bullard, I thought that perhaps at this stage in the game, you might see a little bit of dissension, uh, but uh, with 11 unanimous votes, um, that's, that skews to the hawkish side to me. Yeah, and I don't think we get the dot plots this meeting, do we? I don't think that gets updated. The reality is the Fed can't be happy about the speculative uh, excesses we're seeing in some of the, those tech names. It can't be happy with, I mean, uh, it's fine for them to be okay with a bit of a rally or support, but but you know they don't want unemployment where it is. They don't want markets doing what they're doing right now. Um, if they if they see it, you know, they're going to push up against it. And, and if, if anybody here thinks that that what equity markets are doing and what risk assets are doing, it does not play into the equation. You know, they're, they're kidding themselves. Uh, this is this is uh, not a coincidence. They are in line with what they've been saying. Everybody, you know, this is all about uh, narrative. Everybody wants to hear that inflation you know, is slowing and that that it's uh, the pivot is here. But the Fed has been pretty clear throughout. I think it's important enough. And and I would argue that one of the things I wanted to bring up and I forgot, but what was, yeah, this whole self-defeating nature of not only the risk rally, but also the rally in, in commodities, right? Because if you remember, like the, the bout of dollar weakness that happened was off the back of that CPI report, where basically for the first time during this cycle, headline CPI came in much lower than the core. But core, still compounding at you know, 4.8% is way too high for the Fed. So, and now with this, uh, this, uh, this uh, big, fairly broad-based commodity rally, which ironically I think was driven by the dollar weakness, there's a little bit of kind of like the donkey chasing its tail here. So we shall see. So, so Mike, let me ask you a question. So let's say headline CPI goes negative, but core remains positive, higher than they want. Do they keep keep the foot on the pedal on higher rates? Well, I think, I think ultimately core is what they, what they care about. And so if, if, if the headline stays uh, uh, low for a long period of time, I would expect that to definitely seep into the core, right? Just because it certainly did the other way around. But um, I think everybody here acknowledges that the core part is far stickier than, than the, uh, energy and food components. So um, I think, uh, th th I mean, this is partially why I've written at length about how, you know, OPEC plus in its three different uh, cuts to support the, the oil market was kind of wasting its bullets before the Fed had won its battle because all things being equal, they're just going to prolong the Fed's result, in my opinion. I think sorry, I just had to fight with my microphone there. Does anyone else have any other comments there before I move on to the next question? I think I heard someone unmute there for a second. Yeah, I was I was just gonna add the point. It's kind of um I'm sure people have, have seen it, but uh 
just the concept around base comparison, sort of where we now have passed the most favorable comp, you know, comps on a year over year basis. And obviously you could say that year over year doesn't really matter. We should just be looking at month, but obviously that headline number does matter. And uh, going into the second half of the year, those comps are gonna be harder to, um, you know, to, to beat, especially when you're thinking about the level of energy deflation that happened around this time last year. Um, that's energy components bringing down total CPI by over 1%, I think, um, in the current reading. And so that, as that comes out, you really need to see continued disinflation in, in the core in order to even maintain sort of a stable, uh, stable reading at, at sort of the 3% level that they're at now. And to the extent that month-over-month -month readings are positive going forward, we're going to see um, headline sort of bounce back up. And so I think that just from an optics perspective, um, you know, we can make all the all the arguments about uh, you know, sort of the real time uh, data on leases or, or whatever it might be. But um, obviously, those optics are, are important and seeing an inversion there or sort of, sort of a reversion. If that does play out in the next couple of months, I think it's going to um, you know, be bad from an optics perspective and from just sort of a general um, perception on where inflation is headed. So just kind of on that topic of a recession here, uh, given we received this Fed hike, some are still saying the Fed is still, you know, a couple steps behind in doing what is necessary. And I, I believe a couple of you said that earlier in this panel as well. Bob Elliott, another friend of the spaces, has said, quote, the Fed will continue to extend the cycle where stocks outperform bonds up until they no longer can. He also said that eventually we'll get to the point where bond yields will rise relative to stocks, then a recession will hit. As we wait for the presser here, about 15 minutes to go, I'd love to get the panel's thoughts on headline inflation and recession as we move forward into the second half of the year. Uh, so let's, uh, let's kick this to Randy to start, given that you are, as you said, the fly in the punch bowl, and then we'll spin this around the panel. Uh, well, I mean, it I'm not going to make any predictions on, you know, the stock market or anything. That's not my world. But, you know, like I said, man, the invert, the inverted curve, it, you're, you're, you're betting against a very, very large market of, of a lot of really smart guys. And, I, you know, again, nobody knows the timing, but I sure as hell wouldn't bet against them. Fair. Does anyone have any comments on that? Maybe, Jim, do you have thoughts there? Sorry, I was looking at a few things. Uh, the I will say, uh, in reference, I mean, the bond market has been very wrong for for two years now on multiple occasions. Uh, you know, and everybody says, don't fight the bond market. I, I, you know, I, I, I do think there are opportunities when things structurally get out of line. And, uh, and, and I do think there's something to be said for, um, you know, again, people having a cyclical versus secular story. Uh, broadly wrong. All the models out there are built uh, in the bond market for uh, a cyclical, uh, well, you know, are we going in a recession or are we not? And that's what happens to the yield curve. And that's how uh, what matters. But the reality is, again, we're, we're in a different dynamic now where there are much bigger structural secular uh, things going on that are driving inflation, uh, primarily labor, deglobalization, technological, you know, capital flow um, and, and all of those things matter way more uh, at this point um, than, than the cyclical outcome. And so I do think the bond market is going to continue to be wrong until that, those algorithms change. 
I just want to, you know, the cyclical to secular argument, I think, is is a really interesting one because, uh, you know, as my friend Shrub calls the uh, Gothilocks economy, that's the point where you, you might have a cyclical uh, sort of destructive interference against a secular cycle going the opposite uh, way. And um, here, at least, uh, we, we have that dynamic, right? I would argue that the secular factors or secular is really long-term uh, cyclical, right? Uh, which is demographic. Those are making uh, the Fed, Fed's job very, very difficult because they're trying to, they're trying to impose their will uh, and force the short-term cyclicals down. But what is very scary to me with respect to China is I think the cyclical headwind is cascading into the secular headwind at the same time. If you guys haven't listened to the Odd Lots interview um, uh, uh, that they did with Richard Koo recently, I would encourage it because he studied the whole, you know, Japan lost decades extensively. And, he, and what struck me was when he mentioned that the balance sheet recession and property bubble bursting happened in 1990 for Japan. And it took 19 years before the demographic peak happened with China. Both happened at the same time about two years ago. So when you have a short term cycle, constructively interfere with a long-term cycle that's what i call the china smoldering crater scenario and that's that's very scary so we've got about 10 12 minutes before the presser starts we will be playing the audio from the presser here and we will also be streaming that to the twitch channel for unusual whales twitch.tv slash unusual whales we'll have the video for that but before then, we've got about 10 minutes, like I said. So we're going to kind of move forward into some closing statements. But first, I just want to ask for the panel uh, before 2.30 rolls around here. Uh, some economists, such as Francis Donald at Manulife Investment Management, are saying that they actually expect up to four rate cuts in 2024. So my question to the panel, maybe Joseph or Last Fair, before we move on to closing statements and then the presser, do you foresee rate cuts next year or or are you leaning more towards more rate hikes going into the first quarter of 2024? I think we could have a rate hike, rate cut next uh, next year, of course. I mean, so the Fed likes to think of this uh, in terms of real rates, which is nominal minus uh, in inflation. And if inflation goes goes down later, then in order to, to not become increasingly tight, they, they just also cut nominal rates. And I think uh, Clarita, who of course is, used to be a very influential Fed person, has also made similar remarks next year. Um, but four sounds pretty aggressive to me. Um, just going back to that, to the basic discussion we were just having about what's different this time. Why is, why is, it, why is it that all these models have been wrong? Why is it that the bond market appears to have been very wrong for a very long time as well? I think there are a couple of structural things. I, I like that it's been often mentioned there are demographics, obviously, that that's a big thing that's different this time that maybe the market doesn't fully understand. But another thing that's very different this time that the market doesn't seem to understand is that we have a very different uh, political culture where we have significant fiscal spending. Uh, even today, as the economy has very low un unemployment, very strong nominal growth, real growth is fine as well. We continue to have a fiscal deficit about, let's say, 6%. And... Um, it, that, that seems to be something that's going to be structural going forward. Of course, it will ebb and flow, but we have a change in how we conduct our fiscal affairs where people are very open 
uh, to significant deficit spending. I think I read a recent piece on a, a potential future Trump administration view on this, and, and they, they also seem to be very gung-ho about tax cuts and a new industrial policy and so forth. So we have, structurally speaking, increasing fiscal deficit. And I think in that circumstance, it's very hard to, for the economy uh, to go into recession when you continue to have so much deficit spending, which will no doubt increase if we actually do have a real legitimate economic slowdown. Uh, and that is also, I think, a tailwind for inflation as well. And these two structural things, demographics and the fiscal side are, are really changing uh, everything, I think. And that's why the models of the past don't seem to work very well today, in my view. I think the one thing or the two things I'll add to that, which I think are important right now is uh, in, in conjunction with fiscal, it's the, you know, and these are both tied to that populism trend that we're seeing is protectionism. And that's been going for some time. There's no signs of it stopping. If anything, there's increase, uh, increases in it as we go quarter over quarter, year over year. If you think into an election cycle, there's not going to be increased kind of uh, waving fist at the air uh, and, and protectionism uh, against China, against other entities, um, you know, uh, I, think, I, I think it's going to be a, you know, everybody trying to get more left on, on that, whether you're left or right. Um, two, we're going into election cycle next year. Nobody's really thinking about it or talking about it. But if you think populism was a trend the last three years, buckle up. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to get more fiscal, more protectionism, more rhetoric. And, um, you know, it is populism is popular. And, uh, you know, in a, in a coming election, uh, everybody's going to be fighting to see who can be more populous in the year ahead. So I would, I would expect more of this. And some of it will take another look. You know, some of it be, may be talking about inflation. I think that's the next trend. There's going to be a lot of talk about inflation, but the solutions are going to be populist. And it's ultimately just going to be a fiscal policy by another name. All right. Thank you, everybody. We've got about eight minutes here until the presser. So what I want to do real quick is just run down the panel, get your closing thoughts, how you're feeling going into the second half of 2023. And please, by all means, plug anything you have coming out or that you're working on. So before we get to that presser, let's go ahead and get some closing thoughts. Let's start with you, Randy. Anything you want to add here at the tail end? Sure. I mean, the bond market has not been wrong. It's not a timing mechanism when you go inverted. It, it never has been. It's just telling you what inevitably is going to come early, which what they believe is inevitably going to come. And they went inverted really fast this time because this was the first time we had Ford and Scott, uh, forward guidance to work with. All the other times, which was, by the way, way more fun, we had to wait for the Fed to come out with their announcement and then all hell would break loose and, and then we would know what they were thinking. And so the curve would invert because they knew it was, you know, they were doing the wrong thing. And inevitably, they have to cut rates because they created a recession. I just don't think we don't know what's going to happen yet. But in my opinion, it's just going to be an inevitable thing. And I, I say the only thing I will say is this. The one thing that Powell has not really had to cope with, it seems much anyway. I remember when he came out and, you know, first became chair. He's like, hey, rates are going to go up, set path. We're not even thinking about thinking about pausing blah, blah, blah. And then he got hit in the face with a couple limit down days and he paused. And then he got hit with some more stress in 19 and then he started to cut. My opinion, 
you start to see any stretch in the stock market, that's going to force their hand. Right now, they haven't had it. He hadn't had to deal with it, so he can keep on going. And I, I get maybe that can't happen anymore. I mean, I'm, you know, if you haven't read everything that Michael Green has written on passive investing, you absolutely should. And that, my opinion, that just becomes more of, more of a factor. I, I don't know when reality hits the stock market, but I would I don't wish for it. But I, if we see it, I think you see a whole different ball game coming out from Powell. Thank you, Randy. Last bear. Any final comments? Anything you got a plug you got coming out? Uh, yeah, for final comments, uh, maybe uh, just a couple quick points. I guess one of them uh, being that with respect to the rate cuts, whether you could get four next year. Obviously, rate cuts <laughs> happen a lot faster than rate hikes, um, and so usually that's when you decide that that things are are rolling over. Um, you get those fast um, and, you know, at 100 base points at a time as opposed to 25. So whenever, if, if that, when that time comes inevitably, um, I think that you, you know, could see a substantial repricing, at least for the short term, um, in a short period of time. So I don't know whether that's 2024, but um, I understand how someone would call for, for that, even if that seems out of line with sort of where we are today. Um, and then I think uh, just in terms of sort of where we are in the in the cycle, I, I think it's, to, to me personally, it's much less clear where we are in a macro environment than it was maybe a year ago or two years ago. Um, and I can see arguments from all sides. And so that's in some ways confusing, um, but I think that it's what is important is to sort of remain humble about um, what we know and what we don't know and sort of the range of possibilities. Um, and so I think what I've been looking to do is try to find opportunities where um, I think those present themselves, like, for example, the regional bank rebound that we saw, um, as opposed to trying to tie a thesis to uh, the macroeconomic conditions, which, in my opinion, are, are very hard to judge at, at this point. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, if you guys uh, want to subscribe to my Substack, uh, I put out a, a long-form post every single week on Fridays, um, so you can check that out. Um, but thanks again for having me. Thanks, as always, for coming, Last Bear. Jim, any closing thoughts here? Uh, you know, again, I think uh, you see this often post number, you know, a post announcement, a uh, little buoyancy in the markets because of the decay uh, of the event. Right. This is something we talk about often that event vol decays. You get support, um, you know, watch what the Fed's actually saying. This has been hawkish. Let's see what Powell says. But, uh, you know, after some support today, if this continues to be hawkish, which is what, uh, you know, this this, the, the first part insinuates here, I, I would be fading, uh, you know, in the short term, uh, the buoyancy and uh, and then looking, you know, again, we're also in this window uh, of, of potential weakness. So uh, in terms of post uh, OPEX. So this is a this is an interesting moment to take a look at uh, if, if Powell is as hawkish as, as it, it, the insinuation here is, um, I would be cautious. Thank you, Jim. Michael, any closing comments here before we get to the presser? Sure. Um, so I think that the, the macro, I agree, the macro is extremely hard right now because it, we are in what I call the geopolitical mosh pit, um, where it's an every man for himself dynamic uh, between the central banks as well as OPEC+. Plus. The two big wild cards to me that I'm watching for in terms of uh, whether or not the Fed is going to, quote, win its inflation fight are what happens to unemployment, which in turn feeds into aggregate demand for everything, 
and two, what happens to China. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there, there are all these complicated factors uh, with, with OPEC uh, also, uh, what, what they're doing with commodity prices. So uh, my substack is urbancowboy.com, and that's it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, as always, for coming, Michael. Joseph, you want to wrap us up out here with some closing comments? Anything you got that you're working on? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. It's always great to be here. It's great to hear the thoughts from the other panelists as well. I always learn a ton when I'm here. So looking at what I've seen in the market, I, I my sense is that a lot of people are trying to get ahead of the inevitable uh, Fed cuts because inflation is coming down. They're trying to put on the same trades that worked in, in the past few years. You know, Fed cuts, maybe does QE, assets go higher. But I, I think the, there are real structural factors that are changing in the world. Demographics, of course, labor shortage, and of course, uh, significant fiscal spending that in my mind suggests that the next 10 years will not look like the 10 years preceding it. And so uh, these guys, they, they may be wrong footed. Um, so that's, I'm also very cautious here as well. Um, so if you're interested in hearing more about my thoughts, I also have something that is Substack like it's my website, fitbag.com. So check it out if you're interested in, in learning more about the markets or my personal thoughts, financial system and so forth.